What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour on The Exchange, on a day where oil is higher, bond yields are higher, the dollar is at a 10-month high, stocks are now lower. We're approaching a lot of critical levels out there on Wall Street. And despite all these gathering storm clouds, our market guest is finding opportunity. And in some consumer plays of all places, she makes her TV debut here with the name she says are underappreciated and cheap right now. That's in a moment. Stocks and bonds may be under pressure, but so far, not enough to force Washington's hand to avoid a shutdown. We are apparently nowhere near that pain point yet. So what's next? We talked to two Washington veterans who say they have a solution. And something is happening in Washington today that could be a game changer for the cannabis industry. But can it light a fire under those beleaguered stocks? And what are the broader banking implications? We have the details. Let's start with the markets, though. As I mentioned, a lot of critical levels to watch. Dom Chu has our numbers, Dom. Near the lowest of the session right now, the Dow Industrial is down 170 points, one half of 1% declines there. The S&P at 4259, down 13 points, one third of 1% declines. The trading range so far has gone from anywhere up 19 to down 20. So there's a good amount of symmetry in the trading range, though we're tilted to the downside right now. The Nasdaq Composite up one quarter of 1%, 13,037 the last trade. As for where we stand at some of those critical levels, if you look at the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq Composite, on a year-to-date basis, since some of those highs that we saw kind of earlier this summer, right now you can see the Dow Industrials from those levels down about 6% in that range, down about 8% for the S&P, and down roughly 10% for the Nasdaq Composite from those summer highs. So keep an eye on some of those. And then, by the way, small caps and transportation stocks as well. Check out transports. From those summer highs that we saw right here going down, you can see the transportation down 12% since those highs, and then the small caps down about 10%. So we're seeing some more trend line develop here with the medium term. And then watch those energy stocks, an unexpectedly larger drawdown in U.S. crude stockpiles, helping to push prices higher. WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices up nearly 4% right now, $93.77. That's lifting the entire energy sector, including Kelly exploration and production names like Marathon Oil, Occidental Petroleum. It's called a top pick over at B of A. They're up anywhere from 4 to 5%. So keep an eye on energy. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Absolutely leading the way in a tough tape, Dom. Thank you very much. Uh, bond yields as well. The story of the day as they've reversed higher. And we had a five-year auction top of the hour. Let's bring in Rick Santelli with the latest there. Rick? Yes, it's always difficult, Kelly, to handicap an auction when on the fly, the market's selling off to new extremes, pushing yields higher. The when issued market was just staircasing to yield heaven right as the auction buttoned up. So the yield for this 49 billion five year was 4.659. But the when issued market was actually at 4.671. That's good. Lower yield, higher price. I'm selling if I'm the government, right? They call that stopping through. That's a positive. But when the market's selling off, pushing yields higher, it's that we're leaving it in our wake some of those bids at lower levels. So I gave it B as in boy, which is still a good grade. The only thing that was sort of light here was the direct bidders. 
But as these yields continue to move higher, and in many ways, they continue to be mostly led by long maturities, we are getting very close to some levels, especially in the long end, Kelly, that I think will represent some resistance. Uh, So far, it's just been a one-way move lately. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Also this morning, some more hawkish comments from Fed officials, this time from Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, who says interest rates aren't high enough to tame inflation, even as Bank of America's CEO this afternoon said he thinks the Fed has won the near-term battle on that front. Inflation also the top concern in the latest CNBC Delivering Alpha Investor Survey, which polls some of the nation's leading institutional investors, strategists, and CNBC contributors. Their next biggest worry after inflation is declining consumer sentiment. That said, my next guest says a lot of bad news is already priced into some consumer-facing stocks. And she's finding some great opportunities in this market. Here with me is Samantha McLemore, founder and chief investment officer of Patient Capital Management. Welcome. It's great to see you. Great. great you to worked be here, with, as many reviewers know, Bill Miller for 20-plus years. You've now acquired the Miller Opportunity Equity business this past May. Correct. Okay. Yes, correct. Welcome. And TV debut. TV debut. And what a day between our technological gremlins and the gremlins kind of <laughs> plaguing the market. So this is this doesn't surprise you, the fact that we're a little bit of tough um, sledding out there, but you think it's priced into some stocks already. Is that right? Absolutely, Kelly. And I think the main thing to know is just how resilient the market's been in light of rates and oil and all of these headwinds that would have taken the market down much more last year. We're only down 8%. That's a normal, natural correction. And after a run-up that surprised so many people with its strength and vigor, one I was thinking about you earlier this year, one of the stocks that you had long had your eye on was Delta Airlines. At one point, it was on a 16-day win streak. <laughs> and then along come higher jet fuel prices, and it's, it's staged a pullback. But you still think there's a lot of room to run there, if I'm not mistaken. I think Delta is extremely attractive. I think it's underappreciated quality. This is a premium brand. Airlines are not like they were 20 years ago. There's been a lot of consolidation. There's capacity constraints with pilots and with equipment. And Delta has a 15% free cash flow yield, and it earns mid-teens returns on capital. So this is not a company that should trade at five times earnings. It's $36 a share now. If I recall, you think it's more, what, something in the 70s would be fair value? Yeah, and I actually think it can get to over 100 five years out. Wow, five years out. That's going to be an interesting five (laughs) years between GDP and the deficit and yields and, and whatever's happening. Let me just ask you a big picture for a second. Do you have to change, you know, a lot of the stock picking the past 15, 20 years has been in a very low rate environment. We are not in that anymore, and it seems to be changing day by day. I don't know if that's kind of changing the way that you work. Uh, We're always long term. We're always focused on where are the best opportunities on an intrinsic value basis. I think we've had the worst period for value investing ever in the history through 2020. Worse than... Uh, the tech bubble, worse than the nifty 50s period of the late 60s. I think those negative real rates were an important factor in why that existed. And now that we have higher real rates, that favors a lot of companies that are generating cash flow in the here and now. So I think it will help value continue to outperform. That's fascinating. And if you stuck with the the business through the last 15 years, then, <laughs> you know, this maybe is a welcome change. One of the other names, you, there's a couple of names, uh, a little bit more on the financial side that I think people might be surprised. One main financial, you know, right now we're talking about the deterioration in some subprime areas of the consumer. That's kind of their bread and butter. Why does this stock jump out to you? You know, you hear a lot now about how attractive yields are, and people can get 5% in cash. Kelly, I know you like treasuries. So I think one main, you can get an over a 10% dividend yield that we are confident is secure in any sort of economic environment. 
And once we get through the fear, through a recession, and people are more confident in a recovery, we think that stock can double. So we're seeing attractive opportunities like that. 10% yield, and you're not afraid that that's a, a fool's yield, so to speak, where they're not going to be able to sustain it, the cycle's going to turn, and they're heavily you know, exposed. No, that's often a risk you take when you are investing in yields that high. But we think the stock's trading at 39, even in a financial crisis type recession, they can earn $4 a share. Huh. So they can cover that dividend yield in any environment. Putting your neck out there. Now, again, we've seen Bill, he's, he's not been afraid of controversy over the years. Citigroup is another stock. I do want to mention this one because speaking of things that haven't worked well the past 15 or 20 years, why do you think now is really a change uh, for this company and for this stock price? Yes, I think Citi is underappreciated, underrecognized, and very undervalued. This is a company that's been mismanaged and has a huge bureaucracy for decades. So people are rightfully skeptical. Again, you can get a 5.3% dividend yield here. And Jane Frazier is making all the right moves to fix the business. She's selling underperforming businesses. She's taking out bureaucracy and layers of the organizational structure. So the stock trades at 40 and it has a tangible book value in the 80s, which we think is going to grow to 100 over the next few years. We think as she gets that return on tangible capital up to 11 and 12 percent, which is not heroic, that it'll trade much closer to that tangible book. It's tough to bet on stocks where history has not, you know, favored them. But again, that's so Jane, by the way, Jane Frazier will be on CNBC Friday morning, 10 a.m. with our own Sarah Eisen. We look forward to more comments there. Joining uh, her from the, uh, I think the TMT summit that they're holding. Um, before we go quickly on Expedia, is this just a travel play? I mean, there's been a lot more uh, plaguing the stock as well, competitively speaking? Yeah, no, it's not a travel play. Travel is obviously booming and people are prioritizing it after the pandemic. But this is a company that made made major improvements to the business through the pandemic, integrated their tech stack. We think you're going to see big margin improvement over the next few years. They have bought back 8% of the shares over the past year. So they're returning a lot of capital. Again, a 15% free cash yield. It's a free cash flow machine. And we think very underappreciated. All right. Then we'll, I have to let you go on that. Now, is there anything you and Bill uh, vehemently disagree? You know, is he going to hear any of these and say, no, come on, you know? No, there's nothing we vehemently disagree on. I mean, we were talking stocks earlier this week, and we're both getting each other excited about all the opportunities in this market. So he can't he can't quit it. <laughs> no. He can't. No. Samantha, thank you so much uh, making your debut here. Really enjoy it. On a day like this, no less. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kelly. Samantha McLemore with Patient Capital. All right, everybody, don't look now, but three U.S.-based cannabis companies are actually higher on the year. Leaf is up fractionally, Green Thumb's up 28 percent, and Verano's up 52 percent, although they're both still well off their 52-week highs. The Senate Banking Committee just wrapping up a vote on key legislation for the industry. Jane Wells joins us now with that story. Jane? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, they approved this bill and this action by the banking committee is a huge step forward for an industry that is legal in one form or another in more than half the country. This bill is about public safety first and foremost. The Safer Banking Act allows the estimated $33 billion state legal cannabis industry to finally have bank accounts at major banks that are federally chartered. They can get loans, mortgages, buy insurance. This remains a mostly cash business, which creates all kinds of safety challenges. Cureleaf sells over a billion dollars of cannabis a year, and founder Boris Jordan hopes this law will finally allow the use of credit cards. That obviously will be a boost to the sector, because usually when credit cards are allowed, it's about a 25% boost to almost any industry is, is the 
is the analysis that, uh, that our people as well as other industry experts have come up with. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer says he's going to bring the bill to the floor of the Senate for a full vote as quickly as possible. But the industry thinks its passage could be bigger than banking. It could lead to more investment. Right now, it's essentially impossible for institutions to own stock in the largest U.S. operators in cannabis. And passing legislation like this should lead to that possibility. Now, the stocks have lit up in the last month after the Biden administration asked the DEA to reclassify marijuana as something less dangerous. If that happens and the banking bill passes, maybe the IRS will finally let these marijuana businesses have normal business deductions like payroll. They can't right now. And Kelly, that tax change for Cure Leaf alone would mean $170 million more cash flow. And for a green thumb, it means 50 million. Back to you. Although, Jane, if I'm not mistaken, the industry seems to almost be evolving past cannabis as we've had a couple of high profile deals diversifying into craft beer and you name it. Um, is that because they gave up hope about this legislation or because the larger economics are more challenging than they expected? Oh, I think it's you want to diversify your revenue streams, especially when you can't make normal business deductions and you're dealing with cash in a large portion of your business. I mean, Kelly, we're talking about it's been 11 years since uh, Washington and Colorado legalized recreational cannabis, 27 years since California legalized medical cannabis, and they're still not able to go to Bank of America and have a savings account and get a loan. Interesting. Jane, thank you so much for bringing up us up to date with the latest Jane Wells following that story. And passage of the Safe Banking Act, if it passes, will be key to my next guest. His business connects cannabis companies with financial institutions. And he says, well, this is the first time he's been optimistic it could happen. The language of the bill is far from perfect. Let's bring back Kevin Hart. He's founder and CEO of Green Check Verified. It's good to have you back here, Kevin. Welcome. Wonderful to be here and on a very exciting day, Kelly. Thank what, you. What is why is this time different? Why are you why are why is the whole industry uh, sort of have its hopes up? Well, I, you know, again, this is the first time it's come out of the Senate after what seven, eight, nine times in in the House. This has to go back to the House now, so this is far from a done deal. But as you heard from uh, the other gentlemen, happen to be clients uh, of ours that are are banking through us today. You know, the opportunity for 280E, more cash flow, uh, more products and services associated from mainstream financial institutions, it's a watershed moment. There's still work to be done, but this is a big event. I'm, I actually happen to be at Benzinga uh, Cannabis Capital Conference. It's the largest event for the cannabis industry for investment dollars. And the buzz here uh, in and around that uh, misused term possibly is very real, very so exciting thing. I'm curious because you benefit in a way by by offering the niche services that you do. I mean, would would this legislation, which makes it a lot easier to have traditional banking relationships, actually undermine your business? No, not at all. In fact, it's a catalyst for more financial institutions to get in. They still are going to have the challenge of knowing, you know, what is good money, what's bad money. Okay, just because Safe Banking Act passed, it doesn't or will pass. It doesn't mean that they can identify, you know, who the right cannabis businesses are, the sources of those products, and you know where the money actually comes from. And so there will be more rules and regulations associated with this. Um, this was, uh, you know, put forth in conversations we had last week with Representative Blumenauer and Jim Cole of the Cole Act, and they talked about it. We can bet there's going to be more rules and regulations. And then as you talk about the scheduling and the activities associated with that. You're going to start seeing interstate and international commerce come into play, 
which was referenced here, the diversification. And so that challenge of making sure that the, the flow of money tied to the flow of, of cannabis is going to be critical. But has the ship sailed? You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I think it was Tilray who diversified into craft beer. And we've seen a number of companies rename themselves, diversify their business lines. Is there just a sense that cannabis is not panning out in terms of its business potential the way that they might have thought, you know, three, five, seven years ago? Uh, no, not, not at all. I mean, you, you still look at the growth rate that these businesses have had and you look at the industry and you know what the projected growth rates are. They're still double digits. It's bigger than alcohol in a lot of states. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I I don't think that that's going to be a challenge at all. The diversification is around the opportunity because of their mainline businesses. Um, you know, beverages. How how cannabis is consumed now. It, it has changed and it has evolved so much from what those early days. Even in terms of what products are available on a state by state basis. So. Diversification is critical of any business and the opportunities that they're going to have just continue to grow. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on an important day for the industry. We really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you very much. Kevin Hart. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. The Senate Banking Committee voted to advance a cannabis banking bill. The Safer Banking Act passed with a vote of 14 to 9. This was the first time legislation related to marijuana was advanced uh, and passed a Senate panel. Uh, Three Republicans voted for the bill, and Senator Raphael Warnock was the only Democrat to vote against it. Charles Schumer is expected to bring the legislation to the full Senate for consideration. The Czech Republic approved a defense ministry plan to buy two dozen F-35 fighter jets from the U.S. The $6.5 billion deal will uh, bring the aircraft uh, and pilot training, ammunition, upgrading an Air Force base as well. The Czech Republic prime minister said the move sends a message to allies that they can rely on the country. The first of the jets expected to be delivered, but not until 2031. Apple's former design chief reportedly working with OpenAI on building an AI hardware device. The information reports Johnny Ive and OpenAI CEO Sam Altman are discussing what a device for the AI age would look like. But there's no word on what the device will be or what purpose it will serve. Two key questions to answer, I guess. Altman previously partnered with Thomas Meyerhofer who was Ives' first hire at Apple to design a retina-scanning orb for Altman's WorldCoin crypto project. Hmm. hmm. Okay. There you go, Kel. Retina-scanning orb. What could An he be orb. up to? I don't know. It's fun to ponder. Yeah. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. See you. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, bond yields are higher once again today as the U.S. government hurdles toward a shutdown. And with the proposed bills in both the House and Senate failing to meaningfully address spending, could yields move even higher, like to 7%, as Jamie Dimon suggested yesterday? We'll discuss whether the markets will force Washington's hand next. And as CNBC celebrates Hispanic heritage, we're sharing stories of influential Hispanic business leaders. Here is Mario Carvajal, Chief Strategy Officer at AvePoint. It's really important to know that advantages are not always going to be given to you. You need to create your own, find ways to stand out in the room. I often still feel like a minority in the conversation, but it's important that you also rely on mentorship, um, surrounding yourself with people that really help you reflect on what you're doing um, is critical. And in executive leadership uh, for Hispanic Americans, 
it is important to have that opportunity to reflect. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Want to draw your attention to stocks, which are sitting at session lows. Dow's down 270 points, eight-tenths of a percent. A similar decline for the S&P, about a half a percent for the Nasdaq. This on the back of bond yields that just won't quit. They keep moving higher. That 10-year yield has now pushed above 460. Let's see if I can point the right direction. There it is. 4 point, almost 6.3%. As for the 30-year, we're approaching almost four and three quarters. And we're just three days away from a potential government shutdown. Both sides of the aisle are digging in. Emily Wilkins joins us now with the very latest. Hi, Emily. Hey, Kelly. Well, it is less than four days before the U.S. government could face a shutdown. And we are seeing some major divisions between House and Senate Republicans. Now, of course, the Senate came out with their bipartisan bill yesterday. They started moving forward on that. That would fund the government until November 17th. And it would also include $4.5 billion for Ukraine. But it's an absolute non-starter in the House because it doesn't include anything on border security. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told Republicans this morning that he would not be bringing the Senate bill to the floor in its current form. And this is something that House Republicans are really trying to push right now. I mean, if you look at what's going on with the border, you are seeing a surge of migrants crossing at the southern border. You're also seeing Democrats in New York raise a lot of concerns about the migrant crisis in New York City. So Republicans really see this as an opportune moment to continue to push Biden on the border. And uh, Kevin McCarthy talked a little bit this morning with reporters about that strategy, calling on President Biden to act. The president can take action. The president can do something here that would really help us be able to keep government open at the same time secure our borders. And I think that's what he's hearing from a lot of Democratic leaders across this nation. But what McCarthy doesn't have the support of is his Republican counterpart in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. McConnell took to the Senate floor this morning to basically rebuke the House's plan, saying that if they really wanted to help border agents, they needed to make sure that the government remained open. The vote against a standard short-term funding measure is a vote against paying over a billion dollars in salary for Border Patrol and ICE agents working to track down lethal fentanyl and tame our open borders. 
And Kelly, we are starting to hear some discussion in the Senate about making some tweaks to their bill that would still remain bipartisan, but maybe include something on border security that Democrats could get behind. But that still means we have a very long way to go, a very short time. And folks in D.C. right now are very much bracing for a government shutdown to begin Sunday at midnight. Emily, thank you very much. Our Emily Wilkins reporting. So as that government shutdown looms, what are the main sticking points for both parties and what might the path forward look like? Let's ask Andy Blocker, Global Head of Public Policy at Invesco. Andy, I'm struck by the fact that her report included a lot about border security, but as it pertains to markets, not much about, you know, spending changes or the deficit or anything like that. Yes, um, normally this is about spending only, and there is spending difference um, between the two sides. One's at 1.59 trillion, one's at 1.47 trillion. But really, this is about more than just that. It's about Speaker McCarthy at the end of the day. There's some other issues like things on the border, but it's really personal with him. And until they're able to get past that, it's going to be hard to get a deal. Sure. And, you know, you were saying that you've heard people refer to this as the uh, Seinfeld shutdown, meaning it's about it seems to be about nothing or a show about nothing. But in some ways, it's a show about everything. Right. Like all of the different issues that she mentioned are in the mix here. And as we know, that makes it kind of hard to focus the mind. Exactly. And look, and, and a lot of these are legitimate issues that we should be discussing. We should be discussing the size of government spending. We should be discussing funding Ukraine. We should be talking about uh, funding on the border. But at the end of the day, this is an internal, intramural, uh, internal uh, political thing in amongst the House Republicans. And they need to kind of bring this to a head. And I think I don't know how long this shutdown is. It seems like at least a day or two is at the minimum. But however long it is, they're going to have to confront this affront and, and assault on Speaker McCarthy's leadership or we're going to be here again. How real, and, and it's notable, uh, you know, that, that even the House Freedom Caucus titled its report uh, something like, you know, uh, security then funding. You know, there's, this isn't about reining in spending the way that it was 10 years ago. So when we look at the contours for a path forward, are we even talking about spending levels and that being part of this? Or what should we be watching in terms of uh, progress on these negotiations as this starts to, to get underway? So I think the, the, the most likely scenario on this is that um, one of two things. One, there's enough pain from an actual government shutdown. Um, a lot of essential functions are going to continue. But you remember last shutdown, what really motivated people is when air traffic controllers started calling in sick and that affected everyone's travel and that motivated people politically. That's one angle. The other angle is for the House Republican Conference, the supermajority of them to say enough is enough. Let's Let's vote on this uh, CR so we can have a, a rational conversation. And if, and if the rabble rousers in our group want to call and do a motion to vacate the chair, go right ahead. Until if, that happens, I'm not sure we get there. So and if that happens, and based on what the Senate has already put out there, which had, I think, 77 votes or something like that to it, what would that accomplish uh, if, if literally just that version of this passed? So if that version, it would give them time. It would give them, I think, the, the, the Senate version is 45 days. It gives them time to pass more of the individual bills um, for spending, get them through so you're not talking about a whole government shutdown, whole of government shutdown, which you're looking at today, and then and then start to chip away with it. Remember now, in January, no matter where we're at, if they don't have a deal, we get a we get a we get a full year CR with a one percent cut, which is a lot less of a cut than what some are proposing in the House right now. And what would you say the odds are that that is the deal, the Senate version that ultimately moves forward here in some way, shape or form? At some point, it's, they're going to have to do a CR. It's just a matter of when I 
I don't know how long this shutdown is going to be, but um, it, it, there, as I'm talking to people um, in Congress, um, I've heard more things about them thinking this might be longer than anyone we've had. So hmm. it has that potential. Longer than anyone. And how long was 20? The, the last one doesn't really count. It was a partial shutdown. How long was 2013 again? I think 2013 is around 16 days. 16. So, All yeah. right. Settle in. Andy, thank you so much. We'll check back in soon. Okay, Appreciate thanks. your time today. Andy Blocker with Invesco. Well, markets are increasingly anxious about the fiscal situation in Washington. Wolf's Chris Senek writing this week that he expects bond yields to continue to grind higher, noting that the most important long-term dynamic that's currently being ignored is widening deficits. My next two guests aren't ignoring them, writing in a joint op-ed in the Washington Post today that we need a new bipartisan commission to fix the situation. Joining me now, the authors behind the piece, former North Dakota Senator Kent Conrad, uh, and potentially your colleague Portman will be joining us shortly. Senator Conrad, thanks for your time and welcome. Good to be with you. I find this very, very curious because on, you know, I look at the markets today, 462 on the 10-year now, it just keeps spiraling higher. And people seem to be concerned about what's going to be happening with Treasury issuance and deficits that the CBO says are going to be 5 to 7 percent over the next decade, really. Um, and, sp- and, and yet, everything we just heard in these reports out of Washington about the fight, it's about the border. You know, I, I, it's almost not about spending at all. And I'm just very struck by that. Yeah, you know, uh, there is a bit of a fantasy world um, aspect to all of this, isn't there? I mean, it's such a detachment from reality. What's truly amazing is the Republicans are stuck on just a small part of federal spending. And it's not the part that's causing us the problems. The long-term deficit and debt are from our entitlement programs, Medicare and Social Security. They're not talking about that at all. There is a $6 trillion budget. They're only focusing on $1 trillion of the $6 trillion. They're not dealing with the big problem that we confront, which is the fact that our major entitlements, Medicare and Social Security, are headed for insolvency, according to their trustees, by 2034. Right. Well, well, Senator, aren't uh, you a Democrat? They focus on the big problem. I, I thought I was speaking to the, you know, the, I, I, I'm surprised to hear you shining such a light on, on this issue. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. I was deeply involved in these issues, the Bowles Simpson. The last major effort to take this on, I chaired a commission on retirement security and securing Social Security for the Bipartisan Policy Center. We spent two years, 19 members, totally bipartisan. We ended with a unanimous agreement on how to fix Social Security, how to get the country back on track. Did any of that happen, though? And I want to bring your colleague in in a moment. But whatever came of Simpson-Bowles? So parts of Simpson-Bowles were adopted, but uh, much of it was not. Uh, because again, uh, if you're an elected leader, going back to your home district and saying you've got to re- reduce spending and raise revenue is not a popular message. Right. It's a truthful message, but it's not popular. So, Senator Portman, I appreciate you joining us as well here. And I, I, I like the fact you guys are out of the game now because maybe you can speak a little more candidly about, as your colleague was just doing, the challenges that we face. We need changes to Social Security, Medicare, probably Medicaid, uh, defense, non-defense discretion. I mean, you look across the board and it's going to be very, very difficult. And it's hard to see raising revenues enough to close the gap. It's, it's real. I can understand why, why bond yields are moving higher and markets are a little nervous. By the way, Ken Conrad was never nervous about talking about this stuff when he was in elected office. (laughs) 
And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that he continues to talk about it. But look, it's just common sense. It's unsustainable. The current trajectory is unsustainable. And, and no one can argue that. What we need is to have a new process to get it out of the political process to a certain extent, to get it into the, into the hands of some experts and people who are willing to do what it takes to find common ground to move this forward. And that's why we like the idea of a commission. We think a bipartisan commission has been successful in the past. Even Simpson Bowles, as was noted, although the specific proposals weren't taken up at the time, later in the Budget Control Act of, of 2011, many of those proposals were picked up. And they were some of the things that we used to make some progress at that time on what seemed like, uh, you know, an sure. insurmountable deficit in debt. It's worse now. It is worse now, Senator Portman. So as we watch this, I, I, it, and as we've been talking about this this week, one observer said to me, this is not enough of a crisis to force Washington's hand. The S&P is up 11 percent this year, and the 10 years not even at 5 percent yet. So the worry is that what happens if this needs to get a lot worse, right? What happens if the 10-year yield is 7 percent? What happens if the stock market declines? I mean, it's kind of scary to contemplate. Yeah, well, even at 5 percent, it's a problem if you have the if you have those kind of yields, you're talking about probably an 8% mortgage. Uh, and people are, are I think, going to find that to be, you know, um, very difficult for them to be able to buy a new house or, or to be able to find a buyer for their house. So I, I think we're already there. I mean, I think it's already something that the American people are nervous about because they see it in the interest rates. They see it in inflation, both of which relate uh, directly or indirectly to this fiscal crisis that we found ourselves in. So I think we're there already. And, and I certainly believe that when you look at the trajectory, you look over the next five years and 10 years, uh, it is it, it is truly going into uncharted territory where the debt yeah. becomes more than 100 percent of our GDP. And not just that, Senator Conrad, we think about the impact on mortgage rates, obviously 8 percent, but you can look at a 5 percent treasury or higher and also think that means the deficit, budget deficit is going to be pushing upwards of 8 to 10 percent. Half of the deficit CBO is projecting over the next 10 years between half of the 5 to 7 percent deficit is just the cost of interest. Without that, we'd be around 3%, which is still high by historical standards. But I don't think people understand just how much what's happening on Wall Street today is going to exacerbate this problem for literally years to come. Yeah, it's undeniable. You know, the longer we wait, the more draconian the solutions have to be. That's a mathematical certainty. So I used to say to my colleagues, waiting is not a good option. And it's certainly not a good option in 2023 when, again, the trustees of Medicare and Social Security tell us, they're going to be insolvent by 2034. What does that mean? That means everyone who receives Social Security is going to take a 23 to 24% cut. That's what the law provides. So it is so important that we wake up, smell the roses, and deal with this issue. Yeah. And Senator Portman, I don't think that's going to be politically feasible, honestly. And so if the only choice is to try and raise revenue, how do we do that? Even through the expiration of the Trump tax cuts, the deficit would still be 5.5%. Well, you have to do three things. Uh, one, you need to grow the economy. And, and this is all related. As we said earlier, you know, to the extent you have this huge fiscal overhang, it's very difficult to have the economy uh, meet its potential. Second, you have to deal with the revenue side. And that's tough for those of us who are on the Republican side. But everybody knows that we've got to figure out a way both to grow the economy and to, and to get revenues up. Uh, and then finally, we've got to take a, you know, a serious look at all spending. Uh, you mentioned the, the fact that uh, with regard to domestic discretionary spending, um, you know, we've got challenges, but that's relatively flat uh, based yeah. on the, the current projections. The, the real issue is with regard to the mandatory spending. And it's now two thirds of the budget. Uh, it used to be just a third. It's not just the largest part of the budget. It's the fastest growing part by far. 
And, and that's where we've got to focus. As difficult as it, as it is politically, right. we have no choice because these programs are not sustainable in their current form. Uh, Kent just talked about the fact that Social Security faces such a shortfall that there'll be actually a 24% cut in benefits you know, in, in 2034 or maybe even sooner with the way we're going. So hmm. I, I think there's, a, there's an urgency to move. Abs- urgency is right. I nominate uh, Conrad Portman. Uh, for the new the new commission, I think you both you've stepped. You both know this better than anybody. I can't think of anyone better uh, to try to tackle these challenges. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate no, it. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for your time, thanks Senator for Kent me. Conrad and Senator Rob Portman. Still to come, FTC Chair Lena Khan telling CNBC's Squawk Box that Amazon is responsible for driving up prices, not just on its own site but across the internet. Amazon shares are down more than 3% this week and down 15% from their recent highs. We'll dig into the potential ramifications of her suit next here on The Exchange. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. The hammer drops for Amazon. The FTC alleging they're abusing their monopoly power. At the same time, Amazon is also facing some renewed competition. Shopify announcing it's investing in a wholesale platform that would expand its ecosystem for sellers, not to mention Timu, Shein, Deirdre. You know, I've experimented with uh, Timu, but I don't think that's going to get Lena Khan off Amazon's case. What do you think? It was it was pretty good. They're 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 high touch. They, they keep pinging me, you know, and I it's- think, yeah. It's like e-commerce on steroids. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Like things are popping up every second. There's deals. It's a lot. But anyways, back to Amazon and really this Shopify deal that you just mentioned. It says something interesting about regulators and big tech. Yesterday, of course, the FTC took aim at Amazon uh, for what it calls an illegal monopoly. Here's how Lena Khan put it this morning on Squawk Box. What Amazon's tactics have been about is once it itself achieved that scale, it's been focused on tactics that deprive rivals of the ability to gain that similar critical mass of customers. Now, the e-commerce landscape today, it is very different than it was in 2017 when Lena Khan wrote that paper at Yale Law School talking about antitrust and Amazon. Um, And the main criticism of regulators has been that they're fighting yesterday's battles. Today, for example, Shopify is announcing its deal with wholesale retailer FAIR, expanding their own ecosystem. And here's what FAIR CEO told me about that so-called Amazon threat. Our retailers don't really have much need for Amazon, and most of our brands aren't actually on Amazon. So do you see Amazon as competition then? I don't, actually. I, I really don't. I see it as complementary in the lives of, of consumers. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, for us, the much more interesting partner are the folks that serve uh, SMBs like Shopify. And that's why we're so excited about this partnership. So while the FTC is targeting Amazon's core, that's e-commerce in this latest lawsuit, Amazon is actually moving into other businesses away from that core that's strengthening the prime flywheel and trenching it further. Here's a snapshot of the deals that Amazon has done over LenaCon's tenure. None of them are in e-commerce. They're in streaming, healthcare, logistics, and generative AI that arguably better help Amazon maintain that dominance. So you could argue that Lena Khan is looking in the wrong places if it wants to 
make the playing field more level. Indeed, uh, that will be the line of discussion. Deirdre, for now, thank you very much. Deirdre Bosa, we appreciate it. Still to come, earnings. Near-term options in Micron imply a 6% move. And the street thinks the UAW strike could be a positive for used car retailers like CarMax. We'll find out the key numbers and language to listen for in those reports coming up next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Steve Kovac with a market flash for you on Meta. Take a look at shares down more than 2.5% as CEO Mark Zuckerberg is detailing features of its new headset, the MetaQuest 3. It's $500, goes on sale October 10th. Uh, Zuckerberg going over a bunch of different gaming and other features. Should it be a surprise? They actually pre-announced this uh, a couple months ago ahead of Apple's headset. Uh, but now we're getting all the final details on that. Again, $500 for the headset on sale October 10th. Kelly, I'll send things over to you. Ooh, okay, there you go. And the stock hitting session lows after that announcement as well, Steve. Thank you, Steve Kovac. Meanwhile, earnings season is slowly ramping up, but we're going to take a look at some big names, especially Micron and CarMax in today's earnings exchange. Jeff Kilberg joins me now. He's KKM Financial's founder and CEO. Jeff, welcome to you. Let's dig right in with Micron. Uh, This stock is such a a bellwether, I think, in many ways. It's up over 30 percent this year in part because of AI hype. But we're also expecting to see the first impacts of China's ban on Micron sales to some key industries. So the company thinks around a low teens percent of revenue. Stiefel thinks supply cuts generally should help with their pricing power. What do you do with the stock here? Well, Kelly, I want to be a buyer, but you're absolutely right. You're seeing expectations for a loss of $1.18. That's in stark contrast to the $1.45 they earned just a year ago. And they've been grappling with a lot. They've been trying to figure out supply. But in the recent months, you have seen a rebound in memory trips. And that has really helped outperform or catch some of that performance up about 35% year to date. It's interesting, though, when you talk about Micron and what they're doing, the decisive actions to try and bring back that supply and demand into balance, I think they really have an opportunity with Intel as well being banned in China to really go through this. But I think if you're a buyer here, it's going to make sense. I know we're kind of coming off the artificial intelligence euphoria, but at the end of the day, this is a semiconductor name. We are going to see memory chips come back. Everything we utilize, Kelly, wants more and more memory. I talk to my kids all the time. They want more and more games with more and more memory and more and more graphics. So at the end of the day, I want to be a buyer here at Micron, despite the fact it's been a rough year after a really challenging 2022. Uh, it's still hanging in there uh, so far year to date. Well, let's move on then. A totally different one, CarMax, though. And there's there's an angle here uh, to the UAW strike. Shifting gears, I think you could go with, Thank Kelly. you. But no one does that um, anymore. Pressing a button to shift gears. How about that? Uh, the market for used cars has softened, but Wedbush is saying the UAW strike and tight supplies could drive used car prices back up. Although CarMax, uh, Wedbush says, has also been lagging, uh, lagging competitors. So what do you do with uh, this one into earnings? You know what? I want to be a buyer here as well. It's hard to say, you know, in the month of September, you want to buy here. But if you look at $73, that lines up well. The technicals, a two-day moving average. So you can either be a buyer, be very patient here after the earnings, or you can sell puts at that 73 strike price. But at the end of the day, you've seen a parabolic move in interest rates. to to beat a dead horse. We all know what happened in 2022, and that really stung the consumer. So when you see 2022, what happened to CarMax down over 50%, yes, it has gone down more than its competitor. Look at um, cars.com, which is about 10 times smaller than CarMax. But I think you own this uh, a little bit lower. I think it makes sense here, especially, you know, this is uh, something that, you know, it should have significant support. So if you're a buyer here at $73, Kelly, I think you look at $70 and put a lot of price volume in there. And I feel comfortable owning that name because we will see 
the continued recovery in used cars market. All right. I want to pick up, uh, Jeff, on something you said there and kind of pivot you to the broader markets, if I may. Today has gotten really interesting, for lack of a better word. And it's not that we're seeing fear and panic. The VIX is pretty stable, things like that. But, you know, you have oil at 93, the dollar at 10-month highs. Bond, I mean, the 10-year was at 462 last check. Uh, Someone check on the 20-year. It's probably almost kissing 5%. And stocks are not reacting well to all of this. No, it's not. And I think this is in the context. Where have we come from? We've come from a surprisingly good year to date. So September, you're seeing a lot of rebalancing. You're seeing portfolios potentially take profit going to different sectors. You look at small caps. You look at some of these names that have really been impacted by the interest rates. No one thought that the 10-year note was going to go above 4.5%. I don't know if that's sustainable. But with all the rhetoric coming out of the Federal Reserve, yes, people want to see how high these yields will go before they relent. But I think this is an opportunity when you see the interest rates, which, of course, the bond lead It's been bond leadership ever since we've seen COVID come about. Hmm. But I think there's an opportunity to really sift through and pick some great stocks that are going to have interest rate sensitivity. But I am in the camp, Kelly, that we're going to see the interest rate, specifically the 10-year note, hit 4% before it hits 5%. I know that's a lonely view. It is, but I'm encouraged that someone still holds it because, you know, sentiment has kind of gone so far to the other side with us asking is 5% next, is 7% next, and you name it. What do you think the the bigger pain point is right now? I mean, if we... Do you think that people are kind of too bearish on treasuries now? I think a lot of new bond experts, uh, we get a new, new one anointed daily, it seems like. But at the end of the day, I think people are trying to understand with all the cash on the sideline, cash really found its home last year when you saw the yields pop up to 5%. I think now this is, again, a, a counterintuitive view, but I think people are trying to reposition into some of these stocks that they are finding value in. A lot of growth stocks are finding value. Specifically, I go back to small caps. I talk about some of the, the names that we don't really think about, the Lockheed Martins, the 3M. Some of these names have really been impacted And also the interest rate sensitive name. So that's where we're at moving forward. All right. Jeff, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. See you, Kelly. Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. But for more analysis on markets and the economy, and especially the deficit situation lately, sign up for my newsletter. One easy step over at cnbc.com slash newsletter. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 